What a beautiful thing to see our families in a cross-generational setting singing such sweet, simple songs. There's so much diversity in the church of God. And I was so blessed by our uh, young people leading out in our praise time too. I, it's, it's beautiful to see people who want to praise the Lord. Amen? And that's what we're here for. And praise the Lord for the opportunities we've been given. You know, we are on a journey to read through the Bible, either in a one-year or two- to three-year program. And this morning, we're asking you to be thinking every Friday evening, and we're going to come up with an electronic way to do this, but until then, keep track, and week by week, we're going to see how many chapters of the Bible we're reading together. I had a little, uh, I want to say, eight, nine-year-old girl visit with me, little Kristen, the end of the services last week. She wants to read the Bible all the way through. What do you say? You want to transform a person's heart and mind? Teach them how to hear the voice of Jesus. There's no better place than right here because he was the word in the beginning who said, let there be light. And then he was the rock that followed him through the wilderness and he was the cloud and the fire. And then he showed up in flesh and he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And if ever we're living in an age where our kids need to know Jesus, this is the age. There is such a war on to rob us of our eternal joy in being a family. So let's be faithful. And uh, if you haven't started reading your Bible yet, start. Read it. Listen to it. However you do it. May God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we're about to do some looking into the Word and you're going to look into our heart and you're going to teach us and you're going to say things to us. So I'm just praying that we would be willing to listen and trust you that you never lead your children in a way that will be bad for them. So Lord, we put our lives in your hands and pray that you'll send your spirit, especially as we have this part of the divine worship hour. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about unity, integrity, and loyalty. I've entitled the message, Babylon and the Bride, Integrity, Loyalty, and Unity in the Time of the End. I'm going to show you a video. I don't do this very often, but last night, as my wife was finishing up reading the first chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets on creation, she read a phrase that said we should open the book of nature. So I'm going to open the book for you. And uh, this is not produced by Trinity Broadcasting or Nav Press or Baker Books or any other Christian outlet. This is just the three-minute clip from the BBC. And uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to be broadcasting it because it doesn't fit with our terms with YouTube, but the link will be in the chat box. So if you're online watching, you can go watch what we're watching and you can come back and join us. Watch it all. It doesn't look very good for a while. But... Uh, I wouldn't bring you a big downer into the church, okay? So let's watch it all. As they mature, young males...
So the last second or two of that slide are the bite marks of the hyenas. Now I want to say thank you to Phil Mills Jr., uh, the Lansing pastor, who put that uh, little clip out in a district superintendent's group uh, chat. The Bible says two are better than one. And as the world darkens and the forces of evil multiply, it's a bad time to isolate ourselves and not take advantage of the strength of togetherness. I also think it's kind of illustrating to the second lion that shows up, never quits moving, and as he sees the direness of the situation, he picks up his pace, but he doesn't wonder whether or not he should get involved. And of course, I love to see them rubbing up against each other and rejoicing in a little relief. And I hate hyenas, by the way. I just hate hyenas. <laughs> I want to talk to you about what it's going to look like for the opposing forces at the end. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, I'm reading through the Bible with you. I intend to take the whole thing in at least a year or less. Sometimes I'm reading, sometimes I'm listening. And the other day I was listening while I was exercising and I was listening to the story of the Tower of Babel. And something struck me while I was listening. You know, every time you read a book, you get a little more out of it, especially the Bible. You're ready the next time around to see things you weren't ready to see the first time around, or the second or the third. And of course, after the flood, the inhabitants of earth were not in a compliant mode with God, and they were going to rebel by making sure the mountain they created would be higher than any existed before the flood. And it would be a representation of their continued rebellion to God. And they came together and they started building. Verse 5 of Genesis 11, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And this is what God said. It's direct divine commentary. Behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now the next phrase captured my attention. Nothing they purpose to do, and you could insert the word together in there, will be impossible for them. What I want you to know is that the end time power of Babylon, which is comprised of the Roman church, apostate Protestantism, with legislative power from the United States, and spiritualism, the occult, spiritism, the dynamic of the underworld, angels working miracles, these three powers, two apostate churches and the church of Satan actually come together to form Babylon at the very end and they are very, very united. The whole world wonders after the beast. The whole world, with the exception of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, receive the mark of the beast. And they have one goal. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 13, we'll begin with. Yes, the enemies of God have one goal, and that is to stamp out from the face of the earth any vestige of worship to its creator. To those who believe the Bible, 
and believed that it was written for the ordinary person to read, understand, interpret, and apply. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Turn over to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, verse 12. Talking about the same power, a woman who's being carried by a beast. The beast is described, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, verse 12, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. There's a brief moment, just like when Jesus was crucified, where Pilate and Herod came together. Sin is so focused on self that it can't cooperate together for long. It's an impossibility because to be united requires the subjugation of self, some humility, and a cause called love. But for one hour, the agencies of evil are committed to working together to fight God's people. Verse 13, they have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. One power. These are ten kings. They have monarchical power. We've seen a complete abandonment of constitutional republican principles and the world is so afraid and the common good is supposedly so paramount and important that for a brief moment, all willingness to represent minorities and those who believe differently is gone. Verse 14, they will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome him because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. And this, this morning, friends, I want you to know something. That is you. You are the called. You are the chosen. And through his power, we can be the faithful. What we see also at the end of time is God's people. Turn back to Revelation 14. They are united too. They've come together around the Bible and their relationship with Jesus. Right after the mark of the beast, there is this commentary. This, the most dire warning in the Bible is the warning against the mark of the beast in verses 9 to 11. And then in contrast, we see the people of God. Here is the perseverance or the patience. It's the endurance. What keeps the saints going? They keep the commandments of God through his power, not for salvation, but because they've received it, and they have the faith of Jesus. It's a gift. Every man and woman receives a measure of faith. If you're here today listening, God has put inside you some measure of affirmation that you were created in his image, you're special, and this word reaches down into the innermost parts of your heart. The bride of Revelation and the Babylonian beast of the end come down to a battle not too different from the BBC clip we just saw. And right at the last moment, Jesus shows up to deliver his people right when the devil thinks he's got us in his jaws. So this morning, it's super important that we make a new commitment not only to the ideal of unity, 
but that we make it a goal, we understand it as a process, and we know that it's a product. It's a product of the centrality of Christ, the centrality of his word, the humility of our soul, and the group processing that prays its way into oneness. Now, if you want to get there, you need at least these three ingredients. You need integrity. You need loyalty. You can have unity with just a little more effort. When I was a boy, I used to see pictures. Pictures of this amazing suspension bridge that was over Royal Gorge. Has anybody been to Royal Gorge? Could I see your hands? All right, Royal Gorge is about a thousand foot drop. And it used to be that you drove your car over this bridge that was held up by these steel cables with wooden planks underneath it. And you can still drive over it, or you can be driven over it, and you can still walk over it. And I didn't get to go anywhere when I was a kid, so I went to, oh, I shouldn't say anywhere, I did go to Missouri. I got about an hour away from my hometown, and thanks to my aunt and uncle, I made it up to the north woods of Wisconsin where I fell in love with pine trees and blue lakes. But you know, giving our kids in our church school opportunities to travel, experience things I never experienced until I was a parent, these matter to me. But I would see the picture of this bridge and I thought, I always want to go there. And, and one day I, I showed up. And you know, my aptitude said that I was supposed to be an engineer, but God stepped in and said, yep, you're going to engineer things for me. <laughs> but I still like to go and look at things. So, you know, I look at a bridge. Before I walk over a thousand foot chasm, I'm going to look at the structure I'm trusting. <laughs> and so I looked at those cables, see all those little skinny cables that are wound together. And I traced them back to those big concrete abutments that they're in, and it's like, okay. And uh, I don't mind heights. It's just an issue of confidence, and you walk out on the bridge, and, you know, they drive cars across that bridge still, and while you're out in the middle of that bridge, and you can see a 1,000 feet down to the river, that bridge wiggles and squiggles and moves all around. At the Kelly house, well, no, let me just say this. If I, if I had a group of you there, if we were in our new bus and we were out in Colorado and I said, all right, we're going to walk across the Royal Gorge Bridge. I said, there's only one thing you need to know. The cables no longer have their structural integrity. <laughs> Come on, let's go. Let's transition to something closer to home. Let's say it's, uh, you're coming over to my house to eat. And once you get there, I say, oh, yeah, I made this food. It was really, yeah, it was really good. I said, yeah, as I stirred it, I'd take a bite and test it, and then I'd stir it some more. Are you losing your appetite yet? <laughs> you know, we don't want our recipes compromised. We want hygiene and no lowering of the dynamics of integrity about the things we're doing. But... Our journey with Jesus, if it's compromised, will leave us on the outside of the New Jerusalem and on the outside of the unity of experience. Integrity, it's the state of being internally consistent, morally true, whole. Ministers who lose their integrity no longer can hear the voice of God. Whether it's spoken through a coworker or a spouse or a child, 
Learning to hear God's voice is at the center of a journey of integrity. You can interpret the Bible a thousand different ways, but there is a way to interpret it that's internally consistent with the Word and with the spirit of the Word and gives you confidence to go against the masses. Ministers lose their integrity when they're afraid to obey the voice of God. When they choose to curry favor instead of facing their duties. What happened to America, I might ask? That we went from watching Little House on the Prairie to being confronted with rainbow flags and discussions about kids who can't even buy alcohol or cigarettes having body parts cut off and different kinds of hormones put into their body. I'd like to know what happened to the American pastor who stood on the sidelines affirming everybody in a validation society while we watched a generation begin to implode and the next one completely almost, it appears. Yes, there's a reason the America that we're in is the America the way it is. And that's because the integrity of the conscience, collectively speaking, has been compromised and it's because Pastors abandon the difficult calls in the face of mass media and the new generation of wealth and educational empowerment. The Bible looked pretty old-fashioned, but it's going to look pretty vogue and in fashion not too long from now because it won't be too long from now that there's a serious wake-up call. Amen. We've got too many pastors acting like chaplains, supporting everybody, and we actually need the prophetic voice of God's Word to call people back from the brink of self-destruction. Tuesday morning, I got a phone call. Woman calling me up. Her husband's having an affair. It's nobody in this church. Wednesday afternoon, I get a phone call. Old friend calling me up. One of their, one of their children a woman planning to marry a woman. Should he attend the wedding? The answer is no, by the way. Amen. Yeah. Integrity. Whether it's a recipe or a suspension bridge or whether it's the announcement of righteousness for the sake of functionality. If you have a compass that doesn't point north all the time, it's not a good compass. How do husbands lose integrity? They lose integrity when they begin hiding things, habits, conversations from their spouse. They lose integrity when they refuse to acknowledge they themselves, leader that they are in the home and should be, head of household, is not just what the IRS teaches, it's what the Bible teaches. And when they refuse to acknowledge wrong and say they're sorry, they lose integrity. When they act like boys instead of men, when they pursue pleasure instead of responsibility, when they resort to ducking out of those hard conversations with their wife when they abuse their power. They lose their integrity. Women, how do you lose your integrity? And by the way, integrity is another word for respect. 
when you give in to fear in the face of someone who's bigger and stronger than you are, but might be off the mark and needing to hear from his other half. You lose integrity. It could be your boss. It could be your husband. It could be a coworker. Women, when you abandon your femininity in attitude or action and take up some other form of living life, you wound not only your credibility and integrity, but your actual functionality. When you sell off your call to fulfillment in the form of architecting and establishing a future generation and choose your self-fulfillment over duty, you wound your integrity. God's church, they lose their integrity when they fail to hold their members to ethical and moral standards. When they refuse to take risk, isn't this a faith-based organization? Doesn't the Bible say without faith it's impossible to please God? When you abandon your missional responsibilities and when you become like the world, your integrity is gone. No, no wonder nobody wants to listen to you. You'd be better off making somebody mad because you take a moral stand and keep their respect and hope they wake up someday to the fact there is a God and there is right and wrong than to make everybody feel good about you but not particularly care to be a part of who you are or what you do. Integrity is calibrated by the Word of God and it is corrupted by self-interest, dishonesty, cowardice, and neglect of duty. I can assure you that integrity creates problems. You don't want to lie for the boss? You want a promotion so you give in to your own moral value system? You don't want to be the whistleblower. You don't want to be perceived as the troublemaker. You duck your head. You keep on going. You just compromised your integrity. You're the lion who doesn't show up for the fight. Yes, integrity always creates problems, at least in certain situations, but it always, in the long term, provides solid solutions. Integrity is always refined and it is tested. Do you know how it's tested? In human relationships, integrity is tested by disfavor. You fall out with the masses. If you're Noah and God says, tell them they've got 120 years and you don't do it, you've lost your integrity. If you're Peter and you say to three different people, I don't know him, and you curse to make it a fact, you lose your integrity, aside from losing your own self-respect, which integrity is tied to. And I think it's time that we actually start teaching our children that life is hard, but it's a whole lot less hard when you like and respect yourself than when you doubt yourself and don't respect yourself because you didn't honor your parents and you didn't honor God. Integrity is expensive, but it is also priceless. Let's talk about loyalty for a minute. If we could bring my slides up. Without integrity, you don't know who to be loyal to. This is a pyramid of loyalty for an ordinary family. The Bible says, anybody that loves father and mother me is not worthy of me. Who said it? Who said it? Jesus said it. God comes first. And if God doesn't come first, I guarantee you, you will mess it 
up. Ask me how I know after about three and a half decades of doing what I do. Short term, oh, you're going to make it turn out right. But I'm going to tell you something. When you're managing a principle, you manage through integrity, not through your ability to see the future. Issues of principle are managed on the basis of right and wrong, not your managerial adeptness at making it turn out right. It will look like it's turning out wrong when it's an issue of principle for a while, and then in the end, God himself is responsible for making it turn out right because he said, you reap what you sow. Don't be, don't mock God. The second round of integrity and loyalty goes to your spouse. Those children came along after you got married, typically, and if they didn't, your integrity is still, and loyalty still, first to your spouse. You are the tree under which the children grow. And when parents abandon their loyalty and integrity to each other, they tend to bond with one of the children. It's bad for the child and it's bad for the parent. Then we have commitments to our children who came into our lives and will kind of go out of our lives in some measure, hopefully. <laughs> right? It's okay. I fell in love with my wonderful wife and we love all four of our children and our adopted child, Zalika. But you know what? It's good to see them emancipate themselves because we still like each other and we still love each other. They're always in our lives and we have some obligations to them. Our parents, extended family, our church members and friends, if you're a child, you've got slightly different potential pyramid of loyalty because the parent is like God for a while. But let's talk about the church. Could we do that? Would we agree that our first loyalty is to God? Yes or no? Would we agree the church exists to glorify God? Yes or no? Okay, so God is still at the top of the pyramid. But when we come down to authority and loyalty, the next group is not a person. We don't have a pope and we don't have a king. We have governing boards. We call them constituencies, church boards, whatever. That's how this church works. Our loyalty is next to a body. And God invested it that way on, person, on purpose because any one person with all that power will be corrupted. Amen. Then we go down to a leader. That leader is constituted with certain authority from the governing body who was put in place hopefully by prayer and deliberation under God's principles and direction. We have co-workers we should be loyal to and we have constituents that we serve. Now, if somewhere along the line the church goes adrift, are its workers still primarily committed to this or to this? Or do they sometimes have to go around and be committed to this? Listen, I've got two articles here that I am holding in my hands. The United Methodist Church split grows more contentious as Georgia Conference blocks conservative churches from exiting. And here's one, the Divided Methodist Church. This one's from May, this one's from September, I think. The United Methodist Church is about to become the divided Methodist Church. Oh boy, that's sad. The Council of Bishops finally conceded that a split is imminent. The liberal wing will remain in a predominantly U.S.-based successor denomination, while the conservatives remain in a connection with 
with the growing, mostly Orthodox African churches. Praise the Lord for those faithful African brothers and sisters. Can you say amen? amen. Despite efforts to delay the inevitable, the latter body, which is the southern whites with the African blacks, will become the global Methodist church officially came, coming into existence over the weekend. What, hap what is happening to what heretofore have been the third largest denomination in the United States after the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention is emblematic or it's typical of mainline Protestants in general. Once culturally dominant, listen to what I'm saying, Protestant churches in America grew all the way up to 1963, and then they went backwards. Once culturally dominant, its social, political, and theological witness was compromised. I'm not sure I like this line in the article, but I'll read it. By constant squabbling, despite a slogan of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Well, I'm afraid their minds were a little too open to the spirit of the world. One side wanted to remain rooted in historic Christian teachings on issues of faith and morals, including sexuality, to which the world's largest churches mostly remain committed. The other wanted to move to the secular world's direction on these issues, first as a matter of attracting new members, but eventually and increasingly out of strong moral conviction that these teachings were exclusionary. Do you get what I just read? One church said, what God says in the Bible is still good in a postmodern situation. And the other one said, well, we want to grow. And then eventually they said, isn't it exclusionary to tell people that that's wrong? For a time, it seemed possible that a coalition of white Southerns and black Africans would transform the United Methodist Church from a center-left denomination with a strong evangelical subculture into a mildly center-right one with a robust liberal subculture, making it, this did not happen, making it the first mainline Protestant church reclaimed by its more conservative members but there was no legislative and judicial process for doing it. So this brings me to this article where the Georgia Conference has 700 Baptist churches and 10%, 70 of them want to pull out. And that's this year. And you know what? There'll probably be another 70 of them that want to pull out the next year. But they've blocked it. By the way, just so you know, our roots are kind of in Methodism and they have a general conference too. In this case, They've put an administrative hold on it because the only time you can get them out of the sisterhood of churches is at their general conference meeting and they want to stem the hemorrhaging. Now let me spell this out for you. A lot of these conservative churches have people that are highly committed to what the Bible says and that includes being generous with your time and your talent and your treasure. And to watch 10% of your revenue base, maybe a lot more, find its way into another denomination is very troubling. But I'm here to tell you folks that I'm not so certain that Seventh-day Adventism is that far behind in this discussion. And when we come to a place, you mind bringing that back up, when we come to a place where we have a moral issue and we say that we're going to be loyal to leadership, we are speaking out of a side of our mouth that cannot be confirmed by the heart of God. There is a loyalty that I have to God that supersedes the loyalty that I have to my wife. There is a loyalty to God that I have that supersedes my loyalty to the institution that writes me my paycheck while I love this church. When it comes to moral issues, I have a moral obligation to speak up. 
and so do you. It's about being a member of the family of God. It's about having a healthy family, and it's about honoring God through respectful obedience. Now, I know what the Bible says in Titus chapter 3, verse 13, I think it is. Warn a divisive person, and after you've warned him twice, put him out of the church. Proverbs says there's six things God hates, and the last one is one who sows discord among the brethren. I've preached lots of times on these different texts, and I'm standing here before you this morning reminding you that a divisive attitude and a contrarian in person has no place in any functioning family, and the Bible says you don't linger 470 times with that kind of attitude. Eventually you say, this is not a place for you. Warn him two times, Paul writes to Titus, and after you've warned him two times, it's time for him to go. But there must be some way for the church to distinguish between a contrarian person and a dialogue of principle that could create some potential disagreement. And only mature people can tell the difference, but I believe that most Seventh-day Adventists can tell the difference between someone whose pride and insecurity unite to make him the expert on everything, and he has more to say than he should, my wife's grandfather had a statement that went like this, an empty wagon rattles the loudest. <laughs> Our problem is not so much that we have a bunch of contrarians running around. Our problem is, is that cowardice has taken the ascendancy and love for the institution relative to its undergirding principles up here, which are built on the word of God, we found an erosion and pretty soon we're going to see the cesspools, the tides of evil wash over the dikes and the dams that are meant to hold it back and protect a little space for community and communion for the people of God. Loyalty is about love and it's built on integrity. And if you sacrifice your integrity to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, they're in an order for a certain reason. The Bible doesn't say, be sweet, be merciful, and try to get it right. It says, no, you figure out what the just thing is to do. Try to do it mercifully and be humble about it. They're in, a reason for, they're, they're in that reason for an order. It's an order of understanding. Now let's talk about unity briefly. Unity is a goal, it's a process, and it is a product. It's not created because I command you or anyone commands you to be unified. It is created by God's presence, by God's spirit, and by God's word. Unity to exist requires maturity. It requires the body being mature, having mature leaders. It requires people being able to tell the difference between an issue of interest and an issue of principle. When we, when we remodeled this church seven or eight years ago, there's thousands of square feet of this carpet throughout this whole church. How is it that it became a proverb in church culture that people like to argue about the carpet? Some people just like to argue. But I want to assure you that on the journey that this church made to remodel itself, it actually unified us. 
And that was a miracle I did not expect. We actually took our time. We prayed a lot. Sometimes we apologized to each other. But unity is a process. It is a goal and a hope, but it is a process of allowing the appropriately vested people, and it wasn't all 1,100 of you, it was a smaller group that you invested with authority, but whether that was 10, 12, or 15, it allowed the process to move at its own pace so that everybody could be heard, proper prayers could be made, proper deliberative process could go forward, and then there was consensus most of the time. People who can't be unified are the proud ones. Most of that pride is often rooted in insecurity and the inability to recognize it doesn't always have to go your way. Without humility, there will be no unity. It is a function of discretion and priorities. Whether or not I like this carpet, at some point in time, if 70 or 60% of the rest of the committee did, it's not appropriate for me to keep pressing to get my way. I happen to like the carpet, by the way. <laughs> every leader and every organization has to decide which issues are worth processing, debating, disagreeing over. The carpet is not one. But the moral fabric of our institution is. The priorities of instituting in our practical lives God's Word is. And when you get to the place where the organization veers off course, loyalty to those who have taken it off course is dereliction of duty and it is wrong. And those that would seek to dissipate discussion by suggesting disrespect to the organization are merely mismanaging and misabusing positional power. I sat in conversation with someone who occupies a higher administrative position than me recently. And I explained to that person, I will support you. But when I am in a forum with you where I am working like an associate, I am going to tell you what I think. When I'm done telling you what I think and you've heard what everybody else thinks, you get to make the final decision, and I will support you, of course, unless it was immoral. But I don't hardly ever have to deal with that. Praise the Lord. We have a fantastic organization and a fantastic church, and when you go out thinking evil of people, you're not fit to be a part of processing and decision-making. We have to be the most positive people in the world and the most true all at the same time. Thus, we maintain our integrity, know how to give proper loyalty, and can be unified because of our humility and commitment to God and His Word. When I'm dealing with a man who's running away from his wife and is in the arms of another woman, it's quite okay with me if he hates my guts for a little while. But he needs to hear that he's blowing up his family, destroying his own life, and reducing himself to a crust of bread. And he should hear it on the front side, not the back side, so he can do some limiting of the damage if he so desires. Parents, you want to maintain your credibility? 
Don't abandon your principles in the adolescent years of your kids' lives. And if you have to go through a rough ride and run through some parental turbulence and wrestle around about who's going to actually drive the family plane, it's worth doing. Because <laughs> while we're living in this age where you can have your body parts cut off even though you can't buy beer or get cigarettes, kids still need parents. Can anybody say amen? amen. And they may not like you for a while. About wait a decade or two. They'll have some good things to say about you. Can I get a witness? Yes, you're lacking integrity when you don't follow Matthew 18 and go talk to people. Yes, that's a lack of integrity. And when our churches fall apart, it's usually bad leadership. Good leadership costs a lot. Now let's end on a positive note. Old Peter said, <laughs> I don't know him. No, I don't know him, I said. I blankety-blank don't know him. Would you leave me alone now? And he went and he cried his eyes out. He looked into the face of Jesus, who was still loyal to him. And he realized he didn't know what was in him. And he ran all the way back to Gethsemane. And he fell down where there were drops of blood in the dirt where Jesus had been clawing the service of the ground. And he cried and he cried and he cried. And he didn't think he could be reinstated. Jesus met him. And he said to the one he sent the message with, and be sure to tell Peter, I'm including him, I want him there too. No sweeter words ever fell on Peter's ears then tell my disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Those men who bickered about who was going to be the left and the right hand guy just a few days before found themselves in that upper room saying, I'm sorry. The love of Christ was showing them that they had great value, but they had made big mistakes and they had prized their own opinion of themselves way too much and their real value was in the cross and the price that was paid by the Son of God. And in that 40 days, and then those last 10 days in the upper room, those people bonded to where they'd sell their stuff. They'd go from being rich to poor to keep the church alive and they'd finally die for Jesus. You talk about loyal <laughs> You, 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 Caiaphas and Annas, you can tell us to quit preaching, but you tell us this question. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? We're here today because they knew how the pyramid of loyalty worked. They understood what integrity was and their unity with Christ compelled them. And out of that experience came 200 years of persecution to the Christian church, but it grew anyway. And it became the most powerful societal institution. And we're here today because they had spiritual integrity and relational integrity. And they had true loyalty, which put God first and then knew how loyalty looked in all their other relationships. And the unity that came out of that broke the back of the Roman Empire. Friends, it's going to be a 
knock down, drag out. And we're going to be the ones knocked down and it's going to look like we're going to get drug out. And the hyenas are going to come on in and they're going to inflict a few wounds on us before the lion of the tribe of Judah shows up. And I just want you to know something. It's going to be an absolute dynamic of <laughs> togetherness. The world is together and they hate us because our deeds and our words and our actions show that their lives are dark. We're not going to hate them. We're going to love each other. And, and before the final close of probation, some of them are going to say it's their love for each other that's so unique in this polarizing, coming apart world. And they're going to come on over to our side, some. When the door is closed and there is no more getting on the ark, there's going to be some anguish and some trusting and some calling out to God. But the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you, He's going to speak peace to our hearts. He's going to send angels to sustain us. If he could put bread on the desert floor for 40 years, he can take care of us for the few years that persecution might be underway. I'm here to tell you the church is going to look like it's going to fall. Second selected messages. We won't have any institutions. We won't have any conferences. We won't have any churches. Does that mean the church fell? No. Because the church is the bond of Christ and the believers. And whether you're in a hovel or a cave or a barn or an orchard or wherever you're going to be, there's still going to be a witness and it's going to be God's church. Until then, we need to recommit to knowing what true integrity is, following the principles of loyalty with God at the top of the pyramid and working for unity as a goal, knowing it's a process and also a product that comes because two can't walk together unless they be agreed. So let's subjugate our pride in humility to the truth of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Let's have the courage to do what we should do, the kindness and the deference and a knowledge of what's a principle and what's a preference. And let's come together and give this world one final witness. As, as uh, I got an email from Dan Bakioki the other day wishing me a happy new year. He said, time is short and we got a lot to do. He's right. So let's press together. You can't press together unless you come together. Come on, friends. This is 2023. It's the year of unity. It's the year of coming together. We don't need to end up like the Methodists. We need to come together in the name of Jesus on the Word of God with God in the front, God at the top. And let's have integrity in what we do. Let's have loyalty for each other. And let's enjoy the blessed sweetness of being one in Christ. Amen. Let's stand for our closing hymn.